Joining us now in the program is author Brian Burroughs, a special correspondent for Vanity Fair and was formerly a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. He's written three previous books, including Barbarians at the Gate, The Fall of R.J.R. Nabisco. Mr. Burroughs, welcome to Radio Parallax. You write that the first stories you can remember, the ones that made you want to become a writer, were those of Bonnie and Clyde. What fascinated you about those outlaws? Well, I heard these stories from my grandfather when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s. And this was a time, you know, jet planes and nuclear bombs and television. And the idea that there were outlaws in the land running around for months and, in some cases, years, robbing banks and, uh, you know, kidnapping millionaires, it, they sounded like stories out of the Wild West or something. I could never get my mind around it that these were stories that had happened when my grandfather was a young man, uh, barely 40 years before. And I still am amazed uh, today when you can occasionally find somebody now in their 80s or early 90s that can remember this period in the 1930s when so many kind of legendary, if you will, criminals were at large at the, at the same time. It just it, 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 it amazes me how much America has changed in so short a period. Well, your book starts out, I think most people probably have heard of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, but your book reveals that it's the Kansas City Massacre that really changed the face of law enforcement in America. Can you tell us about that incident? Sure. The Kansas City Massacre was what brought the FBI into its first confrontation with major criminals, uh, from John Dillinger to, uh, to Pretty Boy Floyd. Uh, the Kansas City Massacre happened on a Saturday morning in June 1933 when a group of FBI agents and Kansas City policemen were... Uh, escorting an escaped federal prisoner back from Arkansas up to Leavenworth Prison. And they got off the train there in uh, Kansas City at Union Station. In Kansas City, they actually call it the Union Station Massacre, I'm reminded. And uh, two men opened fire on their car, uh, killing five of them, including an FBI agent, as well as the prisoner. Uh, One of those two uh, assassins was almost certainly Pretty Boy Floyd. It was this massacre. Uh, and two big-name kidnappings of Midwestern millionaires in the next month that for the first time thrust the FBI into this, uh, what was called a war on crime. Before this period, you know, the FBI barely existed. It was called the BI. It had, you know, a few hundred agents uh, whose responsibility was for, you know, minor federal crimes, crimes at sea, crimes in Alaska, crimes on Indian reservations. They couldn't carry guns. And they couldn't even make arrests. And this was, uh, this was the beginning of the war that changed everything. Well, you describe agents not carrying guns facing men that uh, would carjack, take hostages, jump on fast, uh, fast V8 uh, motor cars and, and, and basically spray bullets around. So it was quite a mismatch in, in 1933. What's amazing is you look at this story of the, the FBI's two-year two fight against you know, the likes of Bonnie and Clyde and John Dillinger, is how ugly it started off. I mean, in those opening months in 33 and 34, the FBI, uh, its young agents, very few of whom had any law enforcement experience, were, were given guns and basically just sent, you know, sent out to go find Machine Gun Kelly, go find John Dillinger. And what they found was a lot of trouble. Uh, they ended up arresting the wrong people, convicting the wrong people, shooting the wrong people, in some cases killing the wrong people and getting themselves killed. Uh, but what's really great, or what, what I found most fascinating about five years of research, is that the FBI has now released all its original case files from the 1930s. And so we can actually, you can actually tell the story for the first time from the inside about what the FBI was actually doing, not what newspapers thought they were doing. And you can see the FBI actually get better. You can see them learn how to use guns and recruit informants 
and learn how to track fugitives so that by the end of this very intense two-year period, you know, the FBI, they've become national heroes. J. Edgar Hoover is kind of a, an overnight sensation, a household name. Um, and it's amazing because it, it introduced Americans to a, an idea that we now take for granted. That is that the, it's the federal government, the central government, that has responsibility for law and order. Before 1933, before the fights against uh, Bonnie and Clyde and John Dillinger, um, law enforcement was purely the province of you know local sheriffs and uh, local police departments that were that were too often badly corrupt. Well, your book is certainly filled with uh, the documents. Uh, documentation obviously comes out of uh, FBI files, um, many of which only released fairly recently, well, including many secrets. You note, uh, what are some things that surprised you most out of what came out recently? Well, there's been there were so many things that, that that we learn. I mean, for instance, some of your listeners may remember dimly uh, the the name Ma Barker, uh, maybe from a bad Shelley Winters movie right. back in the '60s. Uh, you know, uh, back in the '30s, J. Edgar Hoover elevated her to the status of the most evil woman in American history, <laughs> the greatest American female criminal. In fact, we now from now know from several hundred thousand pages of FBI files, she not only wasn't a criminal mastermind, she wasn't a criminal. She never fired a gun or robbed a bank. What she did was she lived fairly well off the ill-gotten gains of her two sons, who were kidnappers and bank robbers. But what happened was kind of a it was kind of a fluke when the FBI finally closed in on her youngest son Fred Barker in a, a lake house in rural Florida in January 1935. They opened fire to one of these classic kind of gangland, uh, you, know, uh, you know, the guy inside the house yelling, "I'll kill all you guys!" and 50 FBI guys mowing him down with machine guns. Well, when the FBI finally waved away the tear gas and stormed the house, they found they not only killed Fred Barker, but they'd killed a 62-year-old grandmother that, at that point, they'd never heard of. Uh, so that afternoon when J. Edgar Hoover went in front of a press conference in Washington, I think he most dreaded the, the, the question from some nosy reporter asking, why'd you kill his grandmother? Uh, so instead of apologizing for killing a woman who probably wasn't a criminal, Hoover decided to take the offensive, elevated her to the uh, status of criminal mastermind, and, and thus uh, a minor American legend was born, one that we can now dispel. It's it's interesting. You note uh, a, lo- a lot of the upside and downside to J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, for example, uh, uh, basically when he was criticized, or the operation of a raid was criticized by the um, the agent in charge of St. Paul, he was pretty much transferred. Uh, and yet you note that really a lot of the um, the successes of the FBI are in no small part due to Hoover's tenacity. So can you talk a little bit about the pluses and minuses of J. Edgar Hoover? Yeah, you know, I, you know Doug, I actually had some concerns in, in, in bringing this book out because I thought uh, that, the pic- that the portrait I was going to paint of Hoover was not as black and white as has been, as has been written over the last 40 or 50 years. Uh, you know, two generations of authors largely, I think, influenced by the, by the abuses that the FBI uh, enacted during the Civil Rights era. Uh, they, they've largely forgotten, in fact, that it was J. Edgar Hoover who brought to America the level of professionalism in law enforcement that we enjoy to this day. The story I'm telling is of a far younger Hoover, before you could say uh, absolute power corrupted him absolutely. Um, he was the one who created uh, the first national police force. Uh, he was, uh, whatever else you may say about him, he was a masterful bureaucrat and a masterful administrator uh, and really, you know, did a great job in, in, in bringing about the end to this crime wave, uh, at the end of which bank robbery rates and went way down and, and kidnapping was almost unknown for years. 
Yeah, your uh, your book has been called "Ludicrously Entertaining" by Time Magazine. Certainly, what what I found most entertaining about it was some of this the, the the myriad of details that that you you researched and found. For example, uh, just to cite one that the term G-Man was sort of a legend. Some later called it an invention, but you you showed that actually it was a real quote from the arrest. It just didn't come from Machine Gun Kelly himself. Yeah, uh, small uh, point. This but- was what. This was one of J. Edgar Hoover's favorite stories, the, the, and, and the biggest FBI legend was that when the FBI went to uh, arrest Machine Gun Kelly, he said, don't shoot G-Men, and that gave the, G, the, the FBI its nickname, G-Men, standing for government men. Mm-hmm. Well, very few people ever believed that story. <laughs> they thought that Hoover or his PR men just made it up. In fact, I, I located in a, a tiny little article in a, a Chicago tabloid from the day of the arrest. Uh, that, in fact, the term G-Man did originate with Machine Gun Kelly's, but uh, strangely, he didn't utter the words. The words were actually uh, uttered by his wife. Yeah, and, and another detail, I, what was, I think the guy that really sort of, uh, maybe the unsung hero, that's, that's probably the wrong choice of words from, from your book, is, is John Dillinger. Bonnie and Clyde are, are certainly, thanks to the Hollywood movie in 1967 with Warren Beatty, probably the best known of these people you're talking about, but... But you, you note that clearly the most flamboyant crook of the time was John Dillinger. Can you tell us a little bit about Dillinger? Well, you know, if you, if you were to give a celebrity ratio of, let's say, three to Pretty Boy Floyd, Dillinger was a 20. He was an <laughs> international figure uh, known around the world for the better part of a year because of this string of bank robberies. And he, he, had, he had the human touch. Uh, he was not a killer, although he did kill a policeman at, uh, one day in January 1934. He just wanted the money. And what people found so appealing was, about Dillinger and, uh, often was that he started this string of, of bank robberies, which was mostly across the Midwest, Wisconsin, Illinois, uh, Ohio, Indiana, because he was trying to raise money to get uh, a bunch of his friends out of prison. And when he actually managed to break them out of prison, he then joined them as a bank robber. And even though he was the junior member of the crew, showed so much flamboyance and skill at, at robbing banks that ultimately he became the nation's best-known criminal for most of 1934. He was captured twice, uh, both times managed to escape, which really kind of made him a folk hero at a time that during the Depression when so many Americans were angry at, at government. Uh, and at the banks. They were ready to cheer on a guy like Dillinger who seemed like he could escape from any prison and who was being chased by so many grim-faced FBI agents. I mean, there, there's actually, I found a little interview where a, a Cub Scout had gone in to get a, an award from the governor of Indiana, and one of the reporters asked him, by the way, what, little Johnny, what do you think of John Dillinger? And of course, little Johnny said, he's my hero. <laughs> it's, it is... It's quite amazing that uh, that he was really playing the press. I mean, you're describing an episode where he's arrested and he's just there's a room full of reporters, and he is winning over the entire room with 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 just a bit of theater. He was, for lack of a better word, he was a natural. He had a real sense of his own image, which was unusual at a time most of these criminals just just wanted to they just wanted to break into a bank, get enough money, and go off and get drunk. In many cases. Dillinger wanted to be liked, and I think a lot of this had the fact, uh, came from the fact that he came from a good family. Uh, his father was still alive. Uh, he was close with his sisters and his uh, cousins. And I think he wanted, in the Depression, there were you know, at least two types of criminals. There were the, the mean, ugly, killer criminals, like, say, an Al Capone, and then there were these 
folk heroes like Pretty Boy Floyd and John Dillinger, who really didn't deserve that, but were seen that way. And Dillinger realized that if he played it for sympathy, people might be sympathy, uh, sympathetic. And, and by and large, they, they were. He became a, a kind of a national anti-hero and was really, uh, it was the big story of, uh, of those years until he was finally brought down along with and within months of uh, Bonnie and Clyde, Pretty Boy Floyd, Babyface Nelson, and Machine Gun Kelly. Yes, my final question be that uh, comparing 1933-1934, the results of of the war on crime to now, I think it sort of shocks people to realize that you know basically Bonnie and Clyde were assassinated. John Dillinger was just just gunned down, and we've, I I presume, come a long way since then. What what, uh, um, how would you compare then to now? Well, I'm not even sure civil rights was a a a used term in those days. Uh, You know, criminals were shot and killed, and then the police. You know, boasted about it in the newspapers. There was no concern really about, you know, saying, you know, turn yourself in or anything. If you were, if you were John Dillinger, you could expect that when the police saw you, they were going to shoot you. Uh, it was funny in, in the Dillinger. Uh, Dillinger was shot down with very little warning outside the theater, the Biograph Theater there in Chicago. And in the, you know, the next day, the police made very few bones about it. There was a little bit of a backlash about it in some European newspapers of all places. And later, in an account he wrote, the senior agent, you know, actually went out of his way to say, "Oh, we yelled, Dillinger, you know, stop, you know, uh, uh, hold up your hands." Well, it's very clear from the two dozen in- reports written by every agent on the scene last night, that night, that he was given no warning whatsoever. So, you can certainly say civil rights have come a long way in 70 years. The book is Public Enemies, America's Greatest Crime Wave and the Birth of the FBI, 1933 to 1934. We've been speaking with author Brian Burrow. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Mr. Burrow. Thank you. All right, that was a pleasure uh, being able to bring back that uh, interview from the archives. And um, although I have had a chance to see the movie, we're not going to talk uh, about it specifically today. Uh, but joining me to talk about other things related to this is Matt Perry. He's uh, taught a course in filmmaking and screenwriting at Consumnes River College and uh, and also lives in the neighborhood, which is one of the great things about having a show like this, is you can invite your neighbors on, and you'd be surprised who lives nearby. Uh, Matt, welcome to Radio Parallax. It's great to be here. You and I talked, preparatory to your coming on here, about about Public Enemies, and, and mentioned that you had, had taught a, f- a film class that dealt with film noir, and had talked about some gangster movies, and I'm keen to hear to hear from you on this. Well, the interesting thing about the gangster film, and yeah, I taught this class at uh, circulating class of genres, and I did one on noir and the gangster film. And the gangster film is very different from film noir, because film noir is really all about fatalism. And when you deal with a gangster film, you're really talking about a success story. Because any gangster film, you're talking about marginal characters who are on the outskirts of society. They're looking for some sort of notoriety and success. That's why they were so important to the Depression, when people were looking for something to be thrilled about, you know, in this 
era of despair, here came the gangsters, and the gangsters could say what they wanted to, and they could dress the way they wanted to, and they were these rugged individualists, right? Mm -hmm. So my theory about the early gangster film is that it has a direct lineage to Dale Carnegie and the self-help movement of today. Now, I know you're going to freak out by that, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to explain. Out. I'm, just, I'm surprised by the leap in logic, but I'm keen to see how you're going to connect the dots between A and B there. Okay, all right. Well, let's start with the character of the gangster. Okay, these guys are, like I said, typically outcasts. They're uh, very rugged, though. I mean, if you look at the 82-83 version of Scarface, you've got the Cuban immigrant, you've got uh, Al Pacino, playing this character who yeah. wants one thing. He wants the American dream. He wants success. Well, okay. I, let's go back to the 30s. The original, the original Scarface was Paul Muni. The original Scarface was Paul Muni. And one of the favorite, my favorite lines from that movie is he says, there's only one law. Do it first, do it yourself, and keep on doing it. Now, if that's not any better description of the American dream, I don't know what it is. It sounds like Tony Robbins. <laughs> There you go. See, now you're already a believer. Now, if you look, if you look at the self-help movement, if you look at Dale Carnegie, if you look at the power of positive thinking, and you yeah. look at uh, somebody like Tony Robbins who wrote Awaken the Giant Within, these guys are direct followers of the gangster film. You've got Little Caesar uh, with Edward G. Robinson, Scarface, Paul Muni, uh, Public Enemy with Jimmy Cagney. I mean, these were the three triumvirate great gangster films of the 1930s and they all featured these very powerful driven tenacious persistent characters that were seeking the american dream these guys are the uh, the, the epitome of uh, self-help uh, pull yourself up by the bootstrap successful americans and i think the movies of that time really really captured the public imagination as did the, the exploits of all these real criminals like dillinger well, I mean, if you look at the time where you had a country in complete despair and these guys, you know, like I said, they dressed great. They could do anything they wanted to. So, you know, this romanticized version of the gangster is obviously very different from what happens in real life. I mean, if you knew these guys in real life, you'd probably hate them. Movies in the first place. I mean, if you if you think about movies, James Hillman, I don't know if you know him. He's a great, famous Jungian psychiatrist and writer about Jung. And the three most influential people in his life were all filmmakers, because filmmakers tell stories that are about archetypes, they're about myth, and they're about things that we want revealed in our lives that maybe are hidden. They're about, you know, unleashing the psyche. The same thing in movies, that they, you know, that silver screen is showing us a story, is telling us something about ourselves that maybe we don't know about but we want to believe i mean and if you see a gangster film you see these these guys are heroes for very clear reasons they are the kind of people that we wish we could be and not get caught because most of us whenever we act the way these guys do do get caught <laughs> well you know we we're not gonna be able to talk about the johnny depp film today's show because i have an advantage i've seen it matt and you haven't but i do want you to come back in a couple weeks and talk about it but what you're talking about being influenced by the film. There's a wonderful moment near the close of the movie when Dillinger was basically assassinated by the FBI. I'm not giving anything away. I mean, he gets murdered in an alley leaving this 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 motion picture. They actually show clips of the movie interspersing it in, in Public Enemies. It's a Clark Gable picture with William Powell. Gable plays a gangster. And you see the film of Depp playing Dillinger sitting there watching Gable on the screen, sort of admiring what he's looking at, thinking like that's something that's, you know, worthy of emulating. 
And we're no different. We're still watching those films today. I mean, Scarface, you know, uh, Pacino version of Scarface is more popular now than when it was released. You see people walking around the street all the time with these long T-shirts on and there's Scarface looking out at you. The gangster film will always be with us. So will the Western and so will all these genres. Well, if you want to ask people, I don't know, you've probably done this, but if you ask people, you know, the greatest film of all time, somewhere near the top of the list, you're going to find not only The Godfather, but The Godfather Part Two. I mean, they're really well-regarded motion pictures. Absolutely. I mean, they're timeless. And, uh, the, you know, uh, The Godfather set a new standard for the gangster film. But, you know, and that brings up another part aspect of the gangster film and the crime drama that the idea of a code of honor and brotherhood because if you look at marlon brando and the first godfather i mean these guys are coming to see the pope i mean Mm -hmm. basically Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so you have the the tension between evil and good is um threaded throughout gangster films people you know success which we all really admire and these horrible, horrifying acts that are done at the same time. That tension between the two is, is what keeps us watching. And, you know, but you, all these films, there's a very close family tie and brotherhood uh, in all these gangster films. Well, I know Coppola felt, uh, my understanding is he felt he succeeded with that movie because he decided to make it about family. That's true. You look at some of those early films, Public Enemy, uh, Cagney really has this affinity for his partner and he winds up, he can't actually kill him. Scarface, both versions of it, um, the main character has this incestuous love for his sister. In White Heat, the character has a very strong love for his mother. So you see family threaded, as I said, throughout all these films. And something that really struck me with all of our economic woes uh, was how far ahead, uh, you know, Puzo's book and Coppola's movie both The Godfather were in, in noting that um, the famous line, which was cut out, out of the, the, the final picture, which was that Don Corleone is advising his son saying, you know, listen, a man with a briefcase can steal more than 100 men with guns. And I just think of Bernie Madoff every time. <laughs> I was going to mention Bernie Madoff here, uh, but you did, so kudos to you. Well, well Matt, I, I know I've read somewhere, too, that, you know, that a lot of gangsters were taking their cues from what they saw on the big screen. And so they, they were, they'd, they'd see a guy acting, you know, 10 foot tall, black and white in, in, a, in a theater, and they'd think, boy, that's pretty cool. And, and they would consciously then imitate them. That, that's what I've heard. That's true. And actually, what I read recently was that a lot of the dialogue that was written for the early gangster films became a part of our cultural heritage and weren't actually phrases that were used by gangsters of the time, but came from the movies. We just think that the gangsters created them when actually they were written by the screenwriters. Well, I think there's a line from the Maltese Falcon where, where Sam Spade refers to some guy as a gunsel, the, the Elisha Cook character who's kind of the weasel. And the screenwriter stuck it in as a joke because a gunsel actually meant like, uh, you know, a one's uh, socially inferior longtime companion, shall we say. And, 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 yet, and yet in the movie, the context could be construed as a hired gunman. So people started referring to themselves as gunsels, not knowing what it really meant, thinking this meant I'm a hired gun. Yeah, that reminds me of the time that my brother was, my older brother was really mad at me. He was always smarter than I was. And he was, he was so angry. He said, Matt, Matt, you're so nimble. <laughs> I was like, great, thank you. He obviously didn't know what the word meant, so it can happen. Well, Matt, I'm just in closing, I hope you'll come back in a couple weeks after seeing the film. We'll talk a little bit about it because I do think that uh, that that this whole this whole public relations aspect about what was going on with the FBI battling criminals and how the criminals themselves got caught up in this. I think there's that there's a great line uh, as reporters are questioning like Machine Gun Kelly, who was quite 
quite an educated fellow. And he reminded the reporters, fellas, be sure to split my infinitives. I'd be happy to come back and I'll brush up on my grammar before I do. <laughs> Not even, I don't even remember what splitting infinitives is. That's how much I liked language arts back in high school. I used to know what it was, but I don't anymore. Well, there you go. That'd be a good place to interject. If you know what splitting infinitives are, uh, please remind us with an email to info at radioparallax.com. Matt Perry, thanks for joining us, and we hope that you'll be back soon, and we'll talk a little bit more about this most interesting topic, uh, gangsters, film noir, public enemies, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and how this all ties together. Wonderful. Look forward to it.